0: Welcome to Gogarin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines, and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture, and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am editor-in-chief Reka Kingapop, and today I'm talking to political scientist Peter Kreko, director of the Budapest-based think tank Political Capital Institute in Hungary. He is also a former Europe's Futures Fellow of Eurozine's longtime collaborator, the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna. He has written extensively in Eurozine on conspiracy theories and disinformation and their implications for the pandemic. His latest article looks into pseudoscience and vaccine resistance, offering a way to understand the motivated rejection of science by certain populations. In this conversation, we delve into what effect the vaccines will have on the soon upcoming Hungarian elections, and whether there is an antidote to junk science and commercial bogus. But before we get to the conversation, let me draw your attention to Eurozine's freshly launched Patreon page, where you can support our work and get access to special giveaways and exclusive content. Eurozine has been offering quality journalism for free for over two decades, and now we really need our readers and listeners' help to muddle through a very tough time in culture and publishing. This podcast episode, freely available in the is a condensed and edited version of a longer conversation, which is available in its entirety only to our patrons. You can become a patron by pledging as little as 5 euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content on Patreon. Should you be a benevolent billionaire wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for European public sphere, please contact us directly. You can find all the relevant information on eurozine.com support. Thank you. And let's get into it. So, hello and welcome, Peter. It's nice to talk to you.
1: Hi, Rika. Thanks for having me.
0: So, your latest article in Eurozine is about the rise of pseudoscience um, in the pandemic. And in the article, which is obviously available in Eurozine and um, sampled in multiple languages as well, including Hungarian, our native language, uh, Greek, and more um, You talk about a specific notion, the motivated rejection of science um, related to pseudoscience as as a possible reason why people, when scientific solutions are the most direly needed, start to reject science. Explain this to me, please. What's this motivated rejection? What's in the background?
1: Yes, thanks a lot for, again for having me and, and I'm happy that you picked this point up because I think this is the central argument uh, in, in the article. The motivated rejection of science is a concept of very well-known social psychologist Steven Lewandowski, who is also a researcher on, of pseudoscience, of conspiracy theories and disinformation. And his main argument is that uh, denial and rejection of some kind of scientific uh, results and knowledge can be highly motivated in the sense that for some personal and ideological reasons uh, some people uh, could feel uh, that they cannot accept certain forms of uh, or certain Uh, results and conclusions of science, which also means that we do not have to think about everyone who is, let's say, against vaccines, who is denying the uh, climate change, who is, for example, buying homeopathic products as ill-educated, dumb people who are just uh, lacking the knowledge uh, and the education to judge things in the world properly. We can pretty much see in many polls and research that the higher educated people can be quite susceptible to certain forms of pseudoscience as well. And just a few examples, in in Hungary, for example, but I I assume it's similar in Austria, there is a large chunk of uh, grammar school teachers and primary school teachers who reject to get vaccinated and of course not because they are so undereducated but because they feel for some uh, ideological reasons that they just do not want to because they are uh, they want to uh, protect their freedom as they say or for religious reasons or they reject the big pharma or whatever we know there can be many reasons for that. Also, in studies in the United States, for example, it was found that highly educated, sometimes even scientifically educated, but very highly partisan uh, Republican voters can be the most vocal opponents of the idea of global warming because they they say that this is just a hoax and uh, This is a a gang of scientists paid by uh, the green industry who invented this, this story. And regarding homeopathy, most of the studies show us that higher educated and better off people are buying homeopathic products. And of course, it's understandable for a simple reason, because practically they buy small glasses of water for uh, a lot of money and not not everyone can afford that. Still a bit counterintuitive in the sense that the traditional approach of pseudoscience is is uh, based on the uh, so-called deficit model that if you know less then you are more susceptible to conspiracy theories pseudoscience and and rejection of science but uh, the reality is much more complex than that
0: well it may well be sort of intertwined or mixed up with similar, but not quite the same phenomenon. And that is less the rejection of science and probably more the rejection of authorities, which you cite in your article. And the rejection of authorities within and without or external to public health on the personal level can very well be motivated. We have heard a lot of commentary about why vaccination rates are so low throughout Eastern Europe, most of Eastern Europe and what role, for instance, churches have to play in this scheme. You also delve into this, but it is probably more about the figure of authority and trust in authority. Tell me a little bit more about this. This is a, a recurring theme in your article.
1: The importance of authority. Yes, this is clearly crucial. And the early studies have already found quite a robust relationship between rejection of vaccines and mistrust in authorities, the mistrust in governmental communication and mistrust in governmental players as well. And we can see that this is still a robust factor of, of rejection in, in many countries. And from a certain aspect, mistrust in authorities seems to be rational, especially in Eastern part of Europe. For example, if we remember about the uh, very confusing communication around this Putnik vaccine in Russia about uh, its effect. It cannot be used beside alcohol, for example. Then this statement was withdrawn. Then Vladimir Putin told that he won't vaccinate himself because he he's too old for that. And then he changed his mind and so on and so on. So there was a confusion all the time. And this kind of confusion is the fertile ground for mistrust and conspiracy theories. Plus, Russian people generally have a good reason to mistrust the Putin regime for its maltreatment of the citizens and maltreatment of the political opposition. Still, it's much less rational to reject Sputnik vaccine, which according to the most of the studies we know is a good vaccine, even if it is not certified neither by the European medical authorities nor by the WHO, but it's a good vaccine. Still, this rejection of the vaccine based on the rejection of government is is highly rational and costs a lot of lives. And something similar can be said about dramatically low vaccination rates in Bulgaria and Romania with there also there is a good reason historically to be uh, mistrustful towards the government but rejecting the vaccine is uh, still uh, can have deadly consequences and, and seems not to be so rational. If we look around in the world and also look at the mortality figures in most of the research and, and the figures we see show that in Central Eastern European countries, in post-communist countries, there is a lower vaccination rate almost everywhere than in, in Western Europe. And even Austria, the vaccination rate is much higher than in Hungary, for example, that is one of the best in terms of the vaccination rates among the Central Eastern European uh, countries. And uh, I do not see, obviously, that there, there, it would be the only reason, but mistrust in authorities is is, is definitely one one important reason for this uh, rejection of vaccines. And what is very interesting here is that the vaccination rate against measles in Hungary is 100%. Uh, Hungary is usually a model, and it's true for most of the Central Eastern European countries, there are model when it comes to how to improve vaccination rates in the developing world. And there are practically no debates about the MMR vaccines, the measles, mumps, rubella, obligatory vaccines. At the same time, the issue of of the coronavirus vaccine has become not only debated because it's debated all over Western Europe as well, but there is a much larger chunk of the population who rejects the vaccine. And their mistrust towards the system is deeper than they are only mere opposition voters. It's more mistrust towards every kind of authority, not just the government, but towards medical authorities and everyone who have uh, authority to decide over other people's behavior in a, in a pandemic situation.
0: This is obviously a very sort of anecdotic argument, but I here only draw on my personal experience as a parent with the vaccines. The compulsory vaccinations, and I'm, I'm raising a family, I I do work in Austria and Vienna with Eurozine, and I'm raising a family in Budapest. The compulsory vaccines throughout early childhood, that was never a discourse. So you're supposed to appear in front of Multiple authorities, some of which are very unpleasant and vexing, depending, of course, very much oftentimes on your class status and color of your skin, etc. So, your treatment is going to correspond to those, unfortunately. But you're supposed to appear and present the child for certain inspections, minor medical interventions, etc. And those vaccines are nothing outside of the ordinary. So they get their BCG vaccines, Betsy it's called in Hungarian at least, mm-hmm. um, when they are like two or three days old. Mine got when, it was, when, when she was one day old because I left early. So it's sort of, you know, it's not really a, a place for debate. And here's a new intervention or seemingly new intervention based on a technology that actually wasn't developed yesterday, but adjusted and, and customized throughout what a year and a half. And this is all over the place. This is a discourse that exists. And I think it's sort of, at least discursively, it's a different space. Does that even make, it probably makes a little bit of sense. Do you think it has something to do with this, like simply the presence of the discourse? Or is it more getting used to things? Because the the, the BCG vaccines, the, the early childhood vaccines were met with some rejection when they were initially introduced some, what, six decades ago. So maybe it's sort of just getting, becoming part of the culture.
1: Thanks for raising that. And, and it, will, uh, it will sound a bit undemocratic, but it's not. Uh, but it's, it's a mere uh, experience that uh, politicization of, of public health issues or policy issues around also environmental questions not always help not always happen in the sense that if something becomes politicized and something becomes a polarizing force, and this is exactly what we can see these days in all over the Western world regarding uh, vaccines, regarding lockdowns, regarding masks and regarding the role of the doctors and science in general. So if it is becoming politicized, then you have to take sides. and. Uh, I think the most bizarre case of that is probably what we can see these days in the United States, where uh, getting vaccinated or wearing a mask can be seem like a declaration of your political identity, which is totally absurd. But the decades-long uh, denial of science on the American right have led to a situation that if you are born to a Republican state, then you simply have a higher chance to die due to covid because of the of the rejection of the mainstream scientific responses and the politicization of of this uh, issue and in all over the western world uh, there is this emerging narrative and and i think it shows that the classical liberal values still have very strong rhetorical power, but the biggest, strongest narrative and the most powerful narrative is that don't take away our freedoms. It's our body, our choice, uh, saying the people who otherwise, when it comes to uh, uh, issues like abortion, do not necessarily share the same view. But right now they are happy that they can use this fundamental argument about freedom because it is still persuasive. Uh, why to obey the, the politicians if they just tell us what to do, why to obey the doctors if they just tell us what to do? And uh, what I try to describe in the article is that what I call, after Thomas uh, and it's also a, tri- a tribute to Thomas Kuhn's book, I write about uh, the pseudoscientific revolution and the danger of this pseudoscientific revolution. and And it happens because people have a highly ambivalent relationship towards science in uh, all over the Western world. We can see that on the one hand, they are highly admired scientists and think that they are intelligent and quite powerful in the sense that they can invent uh, new things that can uh, change the world. On the other hand, there is a strong mistrust and this mistrust can be uh, amplified if you feel that that virologists and scientists have a stronger authority over you, over you. And this perception is right in the sense that uh, most of the lockdowns and restrictive measures and composer vaccination in Austria and so on and so on, the, in these decisions, politicians mostly follow scientists and, and their discourse. So I think it's it's a freedom fight uh, in the eyes of the ones who are increasingly frustrated over the limitation or or the perceived limitation of their freedom. And from this aspect, I think it's, it's obvious and understandable that there is this pseudoscientific revolt. On the other hand, as I argue, It can undermine the very foundations of of our modern societies where science as some kind of fundamental and axiomatic final source of knowledge and confirmation of facts is is extremely important in an implicit manner in our societies.
0: Well, science has imploded social constructs in the past, has rearranged how societies work. So the fear really does have a basis, even if the desire to reject these changes is vain. I'm not a quantitative scientist like you and I trade more in guesses, but I do guess that the gigantic international anti-science campaigns of the past decades aimed to confuse and destabilize the discourse on climate change probably haven't helped societies develop rational behavioral patterns and a huge trust in people in lab coats, right? I think it's crucially important and we
1: should not ignore the elephant in the room here uh, because this kind of discourse was partially fueled and amplified and, and also kept on the agenda by, um, by big companies who uh, were interested in, in selling fossil fuels. And they tried to create an environment in which you just start to question the facts, the same philosophy as with the with the Russian disinformation. Most important thing is not necessary to persuade you about one thing that uh, climate change does not exist and, and let's say fossil fuels do no harm to the environment at all. The, but you should be confused about that. You should hear contradicting positions and you're lost in the jungle of narratives and then if you say that, OK, I just don't know what the hell is true, then uh, nothing is true and everything is true at the same time. And that this confusion is already qualifies as a success. So this is, this is important as well. And we could see something similar with the tobacco industry decades ago, where they tried to create an environment as well to create an illusion that there is a scientific debate about the healthcare consequences of, of smoking in a time when there was already robust evidence that smoking is not very good for your health. Sorry for everyone who does smoke. I, I don't want to preach. It's just I'm just quoting the, the scientific consent in that. And this is the you don't have that, to be sorry that that for they, them.
0: They're happy because they yeah. still smoke.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And yeah, in the cost-benefit analysis, it's still, uh, costs can be higher. So that's, that's very important that this rejection of science is not coming just, let's say, in a bottom-up grassroots level. It's not just the revolt of people, but this is something that is also elitist to a certain extent and, and, and fueled by, by uh, some politicians, especially in the populist right, but also some big business players.
0: In the article, you write, this is an easy game. Science is elitist by nature, at least in terms of who can participate in the production of knowledge. And here you also point out that the problem lays with junk science and a poor science education. So it's sort of a combination of uh, those who practice science and can access science, not providing enough accessibility to their knowledge. It is an ivory tower by nature to at least some extent. And then uh, education systems, which were, would be supposed to provide these entrances as well on the other end, perform poorly. And in the middle, like a veg, you kind of, at least as I understand your argumentation, in the middle as a veg is junk science, which abuses this disconnect. How does this come about? Whose fault is it? And where does this whole thing get fixed?
1: Yeah, uh, easy questions to respond. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I, I, I would quote Robert Merton here, who wrote it down more than 70 years ago, which is important reminder that what we see regarding pseudoscience is not something new or he wrote that uh, there is an increasing gap between the scientist and the laity and, uh, and lay people. So, and I think there is really clearly an increasing gap, and this is what articulates and, and becomes a political issue around this pandemic. And if we think about it as a gap, and we want to build a bridge that passes over this gap, then we could do it from both sides. We could do it from the side of the scientist and we could do it from the side of the lay people. And when it comes to science, uh, I do not want to over-mystify and also to over-idealize science, even if I'm a positivist, quantitative social scientist. But I do think that on the one hand, science will always remain to a certain extent, an an elitist uh, institution. And and I think we cannot give it up in the sense that there are limits for the democratization of, of science. When it comes to social sciences, for example, I think it's easier. For us social scientists, even if we Uh, or at least the topics that I do research on like pseudoscience or conspiracy theories or disinformation or political populism these are issues that surround us so there is a way to talk about these issues or at least I can try in a way that that more or less everyone can understand that but let's imagine that if you are let's say a nuclear physicist then I think there are very clear limits uh, for uh, the audience to follow you after uh, a certain point or or if you are even a mechanic or uh, so there are I think fields where it will always remain a kind of unfulfilled promise that knowledge can be democratized without boundaries. But I think behavior and mentality matters a lot and I think scientists should invest more into popularize their knowledge. Not just by, let's say, pop science, easy to understand products and cartoons and. Well, and
0: infotainment kind infotainment
1: of. infotainment uh, kind of, of uh, spreading scientific knowledge, but also about talking about issues such as pseudoscience. And for example, I don't think we necessarily have to be all virologists to spot if there are pseudoscientific so called experts uh, that are arguing against vaccines and wearing masks and so on to just find their narrative because their narrative is always about that we the few are the heroes against the corrupt scientific establishment. And I'm a scientist myself and I can claim that you, you don't have to trust science to reject this argument. But uh, scientists are also competing with each other. They are people who are competing with each other. And the reason why science corrects itself is partially because scientists are just envious about each other's achievements. So they have to look at each other as well. So it's totally not natural to assume that there is a corrupt establishment of scientists who are publishing fake results and no one uh, says a word because it's not the way how it, how it works in practice. So this is one, one thing. So scientists should, uh, I, I think, talk more about the process of how they uh, reach to a conclusion and do it in a way that, that uh, pulls people more into the experience of inventing things and finding new things out and possibly it can help to bridge this gap a bit on the, from the side of the lay people and because I think they have some uh, responsibility as well, I I think it is is important that, yes, we can blame politicians, we can blame the social media, we can blame junk science, the uh, scientific practices that lead to wrong conclusions and then uh, they can totally distort the narrative and become a weapon in the hand of pseudo scientific revolts so you can blame uh, these institutions but finally people should have and uh, improve and develop some uh, critical skills to defend themselves it's uh, we cannot only wait for other people to defend us from disinformations from fake news from pseudoscience and the first and most important recommendation would be that it's it's totally okay to say that I know nothing about this issue. Therefore, I don't have a strong opinion. And I think a bit more listening and a bit less opinionated expression of very early conclusion should uh, help the lay discussions not to go into the trap of of pseudoscience. There is a so-called Uh, uh, Kruger-Dunning effect, a social psychological phenomena, which is about that if we know just a bit about any subjects, then we have the illusion, then uh, that uh, we can easily jump to a conclusion and understand it because we just do not understand the topic enough in depth to understand its complexity. So the less we know, the more opinionated we are. But this is an effect that that is quite universal, but we we can fight against it in the sense that if we know that it is a danger, and if we we have a bit of self-reflection, then there is less chance that we ourselves will spread pseudoscience, or we will uh, fall into the trap of uh, pseudoscience. And sorry, one last thought about what scientists themselves can do. Uh, There is a very good book of Naomi Oreskes and her colleagues who argue that there are three important merits of the scientific community. And this is honesty, honesty about funding, honesty about lack of knowledge. If scientists do not know something about the issue, it's fair to say that we do not know that. It's much better than just to claim something with with high uh, arrogance and then it will prove wrong, as it it happened many times with wrong uh, predictions regarding the pandemic. Diversity, which is very important because of what I previously said, that scientists are competing with each other and they can control each other if it is a diverse group even in terms of, of uh, let's say, ideology and, and virtue and humility. Humility in the sense that uh, scientists do not have to always praise uh, for something and, and teach other people, but uh, try to uh, talk from the position of, of uh, not necessarily of authority in every case, but but as as, uh, as in a horizontal manner, and I think it it could be a good way as well of bridging this gap between science and laity.
0: I think we've just passed the Hungarian political Bechtel test. So the classic Bechtel test is uh, is more is not really a scientific method. It's just a sort of a rule of thumb to see whether the portrayal of women in content is fair. The question is when two women talk in a film, at least in the first few minutes, do they ever talk about a topic that's not men and their relationship to them? Now, uh, the version for us is to talk about something for about, say the first 30 minutes on a podcast, that's about an hour without mentioning the Hungarian elections. And I think we've passed that line, so it's time. Yeah,
1: it it's was time. difficult that we we, we <laughs> passed that clear clearly. Yeah,
0: like clear the bar. It's awesome. <laughs> so I need to ask you about it, and I, I will admit, I dread, this uh, sort of compulsory discourse about the Hungarian elections and guessing the results and all that. So I'd love to avoid that part, but I do wonder whether you see a role for the vaccines, vaccination campaigns, and generally public health in the current Hungarian election campaign. Elections are early April, uh, so very close to the time of this conversation, um, mid or late January. And Viktor Orbán, our favorite autocrat, has taken a very peculiar position on vaccines very early on. How do you see this role? Please explain this uh, briefly to our listeners. And how do you see a role for the issue of public health in a country where the public health system has been crumbling or had been crumbling long before the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I, I like this approach because I, I'm already a bit fed up as well and bored of the discussions around Hungarian election, even if it's uh, it's still three months to go.
0: You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with political scientist Peter Kreko. And if you want more, you can access the full conversation and learn about his forecast for the Hungarian elections and what he sees as an antidote to disinformation by becoming a patron. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash Eurozine. And here's a shout out to those who already support Eurozine who have made this episode possible. Thank you to all of our supporters. Stefan Lemetzal, Denise Joy, Dora Pop, Marx, Mercks, Yodichikosh, Vox Europe, Riley Scott, Ankatinen, Mike Walker, Anna Patterson, James Dunnett, Lauren Beck, Franz Lageder, Lux Kikluna, Sophie Lewis, Jofia Pop, and Anton Shekovtov. You guys are legends, and we hope more readers and listeners will join your ranks very soon. Should you be a benevolent billionaire or a philanthropic institution wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a European public sphere, you can also contact us directly. You can find all the relevant information at eurozine.com support. You can read Peter Treco's article in Eurozine on the link in the show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you listen to us and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I've been Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.